0: If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. To sign up, log into Patreon. That's patr dot slash Emerging Cricket. Coming up on today's show, Namibia lighting it up again, cricket's European Super League reality, a look to the Commonwealth Games, and a load of news around the world. Hello and welcome in again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Bezic. We have a man in a new backdrop, albeit in hotel quarantine, Tim Cutler in Vanuatu. How was the move? How was the flight? How are you settling into your new abode for the next two weeks?
1: Well, thought it was never going to (laughs) happen. No. (laughs) We're finally here visa delays um, and other COVID related delays but uh, on Monday it all happened flew up from Sydney to Brisbane no problems and onto the flights bit of a wait in the airport once we landed in Vila for everyone to be processed and then put on buses and apportioned off to the quarantine hotels but no complaints I got a lovely view out into the water so yeah it's compared to what other people go through in quarantine in australia with uh closed windows and and no outdoor time i had three boxes of groceries prepared by vanuatu cricket which was amazing and we get yard time like any good uh any good prisoners we get uh we get 30 minutes to to be outside which is is great as well so yeah i think uh Day zero started the day after though. so you know you say fourteen, but it's actually around fifteen. But uh, yes, I'll it'll be like counting down to Christmas with the numbers on the wall as I uh, as I get closer <laughs> to, to freedom. So I've just got to work out whether it's going to be more of a brave you know, visceral roar of freedom when I get out, or something more like Shawshank Redemption. But uh, well, Shawshank does end on a beach, so it does, it does. Sea went to Nero. Yeah, it was a journey and. Uh, Good to finally be here, a bit more time, but uh, already, yeah, working away, meetings, calls. If I was 100% away in, in Brisbane, I'm now, I feel like I'm 50% here now. You know, there's only so much you can do over <laughs> over calls and Zooms that, that I could have done before anyway. But um, yeah, like I said, I'll be like a kid at Christmas, kind of counting down, watching the clock. <laughs> but uh, I can't be thinking of that, that <laughs> this far out.
0: You can't you can't just scratch out the the tally of days on the wall behind you. You need to put it on a on, on a bit of paper and count it down.
1: Yeah, I I no. No, there's no need to tunnel through any walls. Um no rock hammers required and no, the Ramada the people have been great. So uh I I'll I'll do my best to uh what was the saying? You know, leave it like uh, put things back where where they belong, you know leave you know well put that back where you got it. That was um, the advice I think I remember getting from my, my grandfather. But yes, no 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 scratching. Daniel, you busy, busy B I C.
0: Oh, goodness me. It never ends, does it? Uh, between this and, and all of our other work situations and things like that, I've been stuck on the uh, on the night shift life. So we've actually decided to record this episode in the, in the middle of the day. Of course, everyone around the world will be listening to this at, at different times, but it feels weird looking out and seeing the sun while we're still <laughs> talking. I kind of like it. Uh, but yeah, with night shifts, I find it so hard. I need to go out and go for a walk during the day just to make sure I get enough vitamin D and just
2: you know a little bit of some time in the exercise yard with Tim
0: yeah exactly i tell you what it does feel like quarantine sometimes when you're on you know night shifts day after day and you just wake up and you feel like you're going into the next day and you're not really seeing anyone but yeah it's good to, to, to get out and around and we've been fortunate there's been a lot of cricket to watch we just saw the recently concluded tri-series in Nepal and Nick I'll introduce you in a, in a couple of moments but you did a great rap with with some of the boys there to talk about that uh, a fascinating series and, and so many storylines that you guys talked about Uh, but yeah plenty of other cricket as well around Uh, we'll talk about Namibia um, news you know just about everywhere else around the world and yeah if we look to our overlords in in India we we see a a pretty precarious situation there as well so it might be something that we delve into at a later date talking about the potential of of a World Cup thinking of everybody you know in, in in situations there we know it's it's not ideal and it, there'll be there'll be decisions and ramifications coming up very soon. Uh the other member, the third member of our illustrious emerging cricket podcast team. Nick Skinner, you've been busy in your own right putting together a couple of extra pods here and there, making sure that everything is driving itself nicely. How's how's things going over there?
2: I'm well. I'm I'm feeling a lot better than last time we spoke. Um I've I've been I've been lucky. I've had work sort of on blocks of four days and then sort of three or four days off between them. So, I've been able to get a lot of uh, emerging cricket stuff done and then uh, head, head to work. So, that's that's been good. And of course, having so much cricket to watch, is uh, it's, it's like almost back to normal in some ways.
0: Yeah, it's getting very close, and yeah, again, thinking about the the Nepal series that that just finished up, it it looks as if they've gone into lockdown or a different type of lockdown in Nepal, so they're actually lucky that that series ended up, you know, finishing, and Tim you spoke to, to Peter Saylor, who was, you know, so gracious in, in the hospitality that the Dutch team had and I'm sure the Malaysian team had over there. So I think, you know, while we are talking about it, it was such an incredible job by all three teams to and the Cricket Association of Nepal to actually put on that series and, and get it to run to the end because I'm sure there are a load of issues that they had to deal with that to, you know, make sure crowds didn't come in for fit the, the back end of that series. Of course there were still crowds outside, you know, climbing trees to, to watch it, but they did very well just to get it done, and you know we are seeing associate nations and associate boards now pivoting and finding new ways to to play cricket with this new world that we find ourselves in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was really impressed seeing you know this and the Namibian series. The fact that you know at the start of all this, when England was starting their bio bubble and having the hotels and and whatnot at the ground, I, I sort of thought, well. You know, a lot of associate countries can't really afford to do bio bubbles, but they're you know they're finding a way, and and I've been really impressed with that.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about the Namibia hosting the Namibia series now hosting South Africa emerging in well, it's a quick fire T20 series and and one day series. I think they played three T20s back to back to back. They had a one day the next day, and I think there's only one day break in between in between the other two one-day matches so they're getting everything done reasonably quickly we'll talk about the t20 series first and namibia stole that in the end after losing the first match went uh went on to win that series 2-1 uh we saw you know a couple of of the usual suspects for namibia you know getting in the runs and wickets jj smith with one of the most unbelievable hundreds uh I, i think i've seen you know at this level but Nick, a few players included that that didn't really get a chance in that Uganda series that just went past. We saw Zane Green back on the team and, and opening the batting.
2: Yeah, Green looked to be in good form. He missed the series against Uganda, um, and he's back keeping, which I think is a good decision, honestly. Uh, I think JP Kotzer. Good batsman, you know, he's, he's good enough as keeper, but I think Green is, is significantly better with the gloves. Um, and, and, you know, they've experimented with a number of players. They've had 18 different guys over the course of this and the Uganda series. So they're, they're definitely trying new things, but I, I think, honestly, they, they could have given, you know, more new guys a, a bit of a go or, or given some of the younger players a bit more of a run. Uh, guys like Devon Lecoq, who who scored a 50 in one of the games against Uganda, or, or Macau Dupreeh. You know, Lawrence seems to have disappeared completely. Um, Zivago Hunevald, another left-arm spinner, don't know where he's gone. So, I, I guess it's it's kind of a balance, isn't it? You know, are, are they trying to get their senior players in form, or are they trying to you know tinker and and see who can maybe step up and and stake a claim?
0: I think we made the point in a previous podcast. It might have been two weeks ago that a really good barometer or a really good measure of how well Namibia are going at the moment. Is that there are a number of really good players who aren't making that first 11. You know, when that World Cup comes around in October at the end of the year, assuming it all, you know, goes to plan, and that's a whole new podcast topic in itself, Tim. You look at that Namibian side and and you can probably make a case for them doing quite well in that first round, causing a few surprises. And with Gerard Erasmus at the helm, not only leading the side, but one of the best bats in associate cricket, you've got to say that they're a dark horse to to enter the the next round of that tournament.
1: Yeah, I'd go beyond that. You know, dark horse would indicate some level of of underdog, I'd say they're probably favorite to go through you know I guess we're not going to know well, if they're going to regroup them at the uh, leading up to whenever the next T- T20 World Cup is whether we we do see it in India or, or, or Australia but you know we remarked of the the rotation or, or at least the lack of players like like Zane Green already mentioned not in that Uganda series but to see him reintroduce just shows how strong that squad is and we've talked about their spin bowling ad at, at, at nauseum it's just really I think that the pace bowling has been their one part I think if they're coming up onto sort of harder flat pitches that they may just get people hitting through the line but with their their attack I think their attacks really suited to to Indian conditions with a you know a couple of swing bowlers and and a multitude of of spin options you know you see it yourself with Erasmus who's quickly well I say emerging because maybe it's to the rest of the world but you know if we've been talking about him for two years now he's got to be one of the more, more classy batters <laughs> it's hard to say looking world cricket because it's you know so much it's so sporadic at the, at the moment but i'd love to see him playing against more full member opposition just to really get a level because it's really hard to know you know if we're not seeing these teams come up against the opposition again you know, the, the opportunity to more often you know i guess we'll see them play one game against a, a full member in the T20 world cup but we can only hope for for their sake and i guess for the the viewing pleasure of of cricket fans around the world that they get through to the main round and we see the likes of Erasmus and against the best
0: yeah i thought a a similar thing today actually while we were kind of putting together our notes and erasmus over the last two and a half years he's passed every single test that's been thrown at him you know from world cricket league 2 2019 which is what two years ago now uh making runs at cricket world cup league 2 every time a team tours namibia he makes runs again another sort of tick in, in the box for him but you're right it's hard for us to to make that claim you know at the next level without the chance of, of being tested uh against you know even stronger opposition it does make it very difficult and there was talk of a of a series with Nepal coming up i'm not sure how viable and realistic that's going to be now but nick you made a good point in the notes before we started in talking about the south african domestic system and and we know what their situation is politically at the moment things aren't going too well in that part of the world but is it time again to, to reassess the idea of, of Namibia playing domestic cricket in, in South Africa because it looks like that competition in South Africa is a little bit lopsided and almost begging for for a team like Namibia and the Eagles to, to be there to be tested on that front and to continue to blood that that Namibian side who look ever present and ever stronger every time they, they go out onto the field at the moment
2: well looking at this emerging South Africa team that they've been playing you know it's a it's a sort of it's a mix of guys who are just coming out of the under 19 setup and guys who've sort of been around the the franchise system for a couple of years and are getting established. I think possibly the captain Kishile might have played a, a couple of games for the senior side as well. So they've got a few guys who who have good experience. So I would say, at a guess, they'd be at least a mid-level franchise team in terms of quality. And, and, you know, they're they're playing against them very handily. So, I don't think they'd be outmatched if they were in the the domestic South African comp. I I know there's some some financial considerations and and Cricket South Africa are... um, You know, they're they're, they're not exactly rolling in cash at the moment. But, you know, talking to a few of the Namibian guys at that World Cricket League 2 a couple of years ago, Stefan Bard was saying that, you know, just playing in that competition and especially multi-day cricket was just really helpful for their development and and their ability to develop their technique and to be able to um to have more experience playing against good opposition on a regular basis and looking at the new structure that Cricket South Africa have announced for their domestic tournaments you know they've got 15 teams across two divisions you know why not have Namibia in there and make it eight plus eight I mean I'm not I'm not trying to um you know degrade them and and I'm, I'm very happy that Cricket South Africa have actually sent a team in the midst of all their administrative uh, uh, challenges there. Um, so, you know, good on them for that. Uh, but, you know, maybe they could at least get Namibia in the, the provincial T20 knockout comp. I think that would be a good opportunity for them. They have had some associate representation in similar style tournaments in the past. So, yeah, I, I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity for them. But yeah, yeah, obviously there's, there's going to be financial considerations on, on that front.
1: Yeah, I think the Problem would be for the next two years, though, Namibia is going to be playing so much cricket. You know, we know how much associate cricket is going to be played in the next... Uh, A little while with all the the qualification tournaments and Cricket World Cup League 2 all being pushed to the back end trying to qualify for 2022 and also 2023 50 over World Cup so it's a good idea but I just I just fear that that might mean that Namibia aren't able to send their top squad Uh, and likewise yeah impressive to to see South Africa sending a team I I dare say this may be Namibia leveraging their new uh, airline sponsor with West Air flying in and out of uh, Cape Town and and Joburg. One would assume the situation that cricket South Africa are in. That maybe Namibia has foot the bill for all of that, getting the players in and everything on during their time in in Vintuk. But either way, you know, it's just another another leap forward. I think for what's been a, a really impressive administration uh, since Johan Muller has has taken over everything from their their roadshow to the performance of the the men's teams to the the changes we've we've seen. Um, With the women's team getting a a full-time coach in as well, so it just continues. All we want to see now is how that uh, relates to and translates to performance for the men's team on the field when we get to see them playing some. Now it's weird, isn't it? Because I want to say um, some real cricket because you know we've just seen bilateral cricket against Uganda. You know, we we always get into bilateral cricket and full members, but we're seeing bilateral cricket being played by associates of coming out of that pandemic. So we'll we'll allow it for now. But um, you know, the sooner we can see these teams competing in in events and pathway tournaments. the the better Um, and I think it just looks brighter and brighter for for the work that Namibia has been doing in the meantime
0: Yeah, there's no secret that over the last two years the work behind the scenes and and the action on the field has proven, you know the hard work that everyone's put in in that part of the world you know, they're very much a leader, I think, in the associate world, not only um, in their play but in the in the back rooms, in the organisation, and everything you know that they're undertaking. There, I, th- I think they're very much a, a leading light. And I don't think we've talked about it, Nick. You spoke there about the possibility of playing multi-day fixtures. Um, there was some media last week in regards to a potential second division of multi-day cricket for a few of these international teams around the world which did oddly include the three test nations that aren't a part of the world test championship and now it's probably a good time to to discuss that idea uh it was peter de la was the first person i saw produce something on this on espn Crick info in regards to the possibility and the mulling over of this there are a few downsides and a few holes in you know in this competition and what it would bring and I think the silence is deafening from places like Ireland and Afghanistan who as we have talked about a lot boys have worked so hard to gain full membership only to have a handful of test matches even between them so far in their infancy in in full membership so to look at the idea of this it would be a a positive I think for a number of the associate members to play multi-day cricket but Tim, if you're if you're Ireland or Afghanistan or even Zimbabwe for that matter, do you look at this and see it as a as a step backwards?
1: (laughs) That's a that's a very good question. I think you've got to take a step back and ask yourself what full membership means, and it means a vote at the top table, means additional funding and access to playing Test cricket. And I say access at the moment because that's all they've got. You know, they're not guaranteed test matches they have to organize and pay for themselves if i'm a full member and i see these discussions being had my concern will be well who's going to pay for it if there's a second tier of the world test championship you know Netherlands are getting paid more than any other associate to, to help them prepare for the Cricket World Cup Super League, and, and rightly so. You know, would that mean additional funding for the associates that are playing in these multi-day internationals, whether they're tests or or whatever? But the, let's just call them tests for 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 uh, for argument's sake. Because at the, at the moment, Cricket Ireland posted a I think it was a 1.3, 1.4 four million euro surplus for twenty twenty, but all of that money has already been committed to events that have been postponed anyway. So if you're going to Ireland All of a sudden, you're now going to be playing test series against the Netherlands, Namibia, Scotland. My question would be: Okay, well, who's paying for them? If you're if you're making me play these games on top of what we already get, are you are you bringing more funding in? So, I don't think it's a step backwards. I think the more multi-day cricket these countries can play, it, that's going to create. And build better cricketers it's just a financial challenge Um, and it's also making sure that you have access to the facilities that can can hold at that level and I'm guessing that it would also mean changing the regulations around tv drs etc that are currently there with test cricket you know that's getting quite micro and probably for another podcast but to answer your question I don't don't think so they'd welcome it but it would just be a matter of who's going to pay for it but if you, you look at it from the viewpoint of the associates you know not every associate said they'd be willing to be part of a partially subsidized intercontinental cup so again I think it would come
2: down to you know time and money yeah, I mean, as Tim says, like a lot of these things at, at Associate and even lower full-member level, <laughs> the question is, where, where's the money going to come from? And, and that's unfortunately a, a, a theme throughout a lot of cricket governance. Uh, just thinking, you know, they, they there was, you know, a little while ago, there was the idea of the Test Fund to subsidize Test Cricket in, you know, less profitable areas. And so, uh, if they can get that up and running and, and marry that in with the with the second division or, or even, you know, label the second division the Intercontinental Cup or, you know... There's a lot of things you could do if if you had the money. And, you know, the Intercontinental Cup didn't cost that much money it was quite expensive obviously compared to a couple of t20s or whatever but in terms of you know the ICC's overall budget it wasn't breaking the bank so I think if there was a willingness for this to happen from the top echelons of the ICC you know boardroom I think it could very easily happen and it could very easily be very beneficial to all the teams involved including Ireland and Afghanistan and Zimbabwe who uh, <laughs> as it stands get very little multi-day cricket from anyone so you know why wouldn't you have them playing against the, the, the best associate teams and have a good competition and honestly that's that's a good product that the ICC could sell and I, I don't see this is something that I mean I feel like we've talked about this a lot but it, it just seems like the ICC they're, they're only just dipping their toes in the waters of you know what they can do with the commercial rights you know they've, they've sold the rights to the pathway events but you know there's so much more to associate cricket that they, they could be reaping the benefits of and and, and just seems like there's a, a reluctance there.
0: I think they are intending to look at those pathway tournaments and how they perform from that standpoint to kind of gauge if something like this would be a realistic possibility. And I think there's something, is it something like 540 games that are going to be played under that new streaming partnership that they do have between, you know, multiple men's pathway events and the qualification for the next Women's T20 World Cup? So, look. Cricket needs to find a way to open up the opportunity of, of, of finding these potential you know, commercial streams of income. And that word stream, streaming is going to be so important in, in all of that and, and advertising that, that comes through that as well. And, and making sure that they, they harness the the power of all of that. And again, we've seen multiple examples of of boards in their own way filling the gap. In that space where, yeah, Cricket Namibia in this example right now have, have done an excellent job in putting together just about everything we think off their, out of their own pocket. And it will be interesting to see, you know, what the ICC can then take from that, almost using, you know, their own members as, as inspiration of, of how that's all going to go. And again, talking about the members that would potentially, you know, fill this competition up. And Tim making the point about how could Namibia play in a domestic competition in South Africa with so much cricket on board? That's the other thing that they will need to factor in because the the pathway events and and the cycles are coming through thick and fast at the moment, and they they're already squashing a lot of associate cricket into into one spot and across two out of the three formats. I don't know how how it would happen to to end up you know chucking that that third format in. Whether it would be a case of adding a, a competition for day match at the back end of a Cricket World Cup League two event for the next World Cup cycle. That would be really interesting to see. And and, and two is only being longer and accommodation having to be paid for and, and footed by someone else. So, you know, there are a world of, of complications out there. It's I think the best thing for it, for this potential Test championship, would be a really successful Cricket World Cup League Two and Cricket World Cup Challenge Leagues and, and T20 World Cup qualifiers in the lead-up to, to see just how realistic it can be.
2: Hello everyone, I'm Pieter Selaar. I'm an founder of the Nederlands Cricket Team and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast.
0: On a somewhat relatable topic... Gentlemen, uh, we all saw the football world go bananas for about forty-eight hours there, uh, with the prospect of the European Super League happening at the detriment of a number of national competitions and the UEFA Champions League. Twelve football clubs intending to break away from their respective countries and, and starting afresh. It was a nightmare that many football fans woke up to uh, when they found out that you know a lot of those teams were pulling out at the after the. The, the vitriol and after the protestation they probably saw around the world from a number of their own fans
2: but also the potential legal challenges
0: correct <laughs> and I, I think as a fan of both sports it, it was an interesting moment I know for me personally I'm sure for you too as well the football fans looking at that nightmare and, and just kind of realizing that cricket at the moment is kind of within that reality at the, at the moment especially from the international perspective looking at a number of boards who are a lot bigger than some of the others who are managing to hold fixtures between themselves keeping a large portion of of the money well and truly within themselves as well what did did we learn anything did, do we think cricket can almost take that moment in a way to to try and apply the nightmare that football had to cricket and and to kind of self reflect and and to learn from from cricket shortcomings nick it it seemed a very strange moment in in time both in football and in cricket having that realization
2: yes there are a lot of um very noticeable parallels between current cricket administration and and what those big clubs were trying to do with the breakaway league you know, the the idea of the strong teams monopolizing all the money for themselves and, and uh, you know, locking everybody else out and, you know, they, they can't be relegated and you can insert your own comparisons uh, as, as you see them, I think. But one of the, the big differences that I saw was the strong response from football compared to when, you know, the big three reforms happened and, you know, a number of things like the smaller 50 over World Cup and, and you know, obviously other decisions made that, that are very bad for cricket's development. You know, the the absolute, you know, basically universal condemnation from the football world versus cricket's sort of very anemic response to the big three stuff. We saw fans willing to criticize their own teams. Um, you know, our very own Nate has decided to drop Chelsea from his, um, you know, I mean, it's not a huge commitment from him living in America, but, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, here's he, where being a Leeds United supporter comes in handy because we're too small to be uh, relevant to, to you know we're too irrelevant to be asked into these things. Um, just jump in
1: there. Can I can I guess when you became a Leeds United fan was it around the time that we had uh, Harry Kuehl and Mark Viduka? <laughs> uh,
0: yep, yep, two Australians lighting up the league at that
1: point. Yep, yep. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, look, you've hung around. That's that's okay. But, I just wanted to. I oh think, mate, I've, uh, <laughs> there would be a lot of Aussie fans that. that that's what? what
2: early two thousands? No, yeah, late nineties. I was living in England because um, dad was working there, and I was never that into football. But obviously, all the kids at school were. You know, what, what's your team? Who do you support? And I saw that you know Leeds had these these Australians on them. So I, well, that's that's my guys. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a very bumpy ride ever since. But <laughs> but yes, back.
0: No, I just I just had the I the. the- the light bulb moment I've just had here is that Leeds are a great example of everything that football kind of should and always will be in a way where, you know, they fell away, were relegated and they had that fight, you know, 17 seasons later to promote themselves into the the Premier League again. But the thing was, they were very much a Champions League top four team when they went down and what these six teams in England were trying to do was to almost, you know, hand themselves immunity to the point where they would never have to be in that situation that Leeds are in and We see it now to kind of, you know, go a little bit into football. Arsenal and and Tottenham, by their standards, struggling in the league. I think they're ninth and 10th, respectively. And, you know, had they had the European Super League as almost insurance, they never find themselves in financial turmoil. Whereas Leeds are a good example of what football kind of should be in that they were... Very much a top four team, found themselves in a spot of bother, got relegated, and worked their way back up into the Premier League. So I think it's a very good example of everything that's good about football and what you know football were trying to get away from. But then to bring it to cricket, the full members do have immunity in a sense, don't they? So there's no context, there's no danger of finding and falling out of that bubble of of high in international cricket, and it just I think the product as a result, is is poorer for it. You know, we, we see, again, meaningless bilateral series, especially in, in T20 cricket now with, with 50 over cricket having a Super League and World Cup qualification. At least we have that. But yeah, cricket does find itself in this mediocrity where, you know, a lot of poor play doesn't really get punished the way it would in, in league football.
2: Well, it goes back to the existential questions. You know, we're thinking to the Gideon Haig interview where he was talking about, does cricket exist to make money or does it make money so that it can sustain itself and, and keep being played? And and that's the sort of the key question going on. And you know, Tim Wigmore made a point about how sort of the whole mentality behind this is that sports administrators and, and owners of teams and, you know, the people profiting from the game, they want to isolate their profits from the, you know, the on-field results and the unpredictability of sport. And that's, Antithetical to sport because the whole, you know, the whole, the whole excitement of sport is you don't know if your team's going to win, you don't know if you're going to get relegated or, you know, if you're going to drop down or you're going to get promoted or is this year our year? As as I said for seventeen years, <laughs>
0: this is our year.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not us? Yeah. So you you know, thinking about the unpredictability of sport and and the the business side of things, it's two very incompatible things. And and looking at the response, as I said. The fact that people were willing to drop their teams and and criticise their teams was something that was lacking in I just I feel like there's a level of nationalism that is co-opted by boards to support their agenda. you know you you, you see it you know where when when a board makes a decision that is quite bad for for uh, the growth of cricket a lot of the time it'll come down to sort of these, oh, well, you know, my, my country is better than your country, so we're going to support the board. And, and and I think that's very unhealthy. I think you need to be able to criticize your team and, and you need to be able to separate, you know, the administrators from the players on the field, which, yeah, it doesn't seem to happen quite as much with cricket, which which I think is part of the problem in terms of people at the top being able to get away with whatever they want to do.
0: I would just add that, there's no issue with the idea of cricket wanting or, or trying to make money and, and, and people somewhat profiting from that. But I think there is a level of of income where, you know, from a from a global standpoint, you need to turn around and say, you know, how can we best invest this wealth to grow the game even further? You know, there's no point one particular board or another earning a, a ton of money all to fill it, you know, within the pockets of their, you know, their high-end administrator's and people involved in the game just for their own personal benefit there needs to be some sort of revenue sharing model where okay say one world cup that cricket has goes absolutely gangbusters around the world or you know if cricket was to be included in the olympics something that we talked about last week if the game sees an unbelievable trend in growth over the next you know olympic cycle how that money does get divided up to towards everyone to ensure that the the, the money is a, is a rising tide that floats all boats to use you know the analogy that we use over and over again instead of just lining the pockets of of a couple of administrators who just you know stand around and, and go to meetings that are being funded by someone else
2: <laughs> he says with an administrator in the room <laughs> it's the answer to a question that no one asked isn't it
1: this this super league you know who said that you know, European football needed a, another tier above because people weren't enjoying uh, UEFAs leagues and, and cups and it's it's almost like you know th- these clubs don't exist in a vacuum you know they, they didn't attain this level playing against each other only you know they've come through these leagues and be part of it and then all of a sudden it's like yep sorry guys you know we're not getting what we want out of you we're, we're leaving so everyone that was likening it to the hundred and I, I it was a very you know UK centric. Um, tweet storm on that fact but it's like no 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 we're not talking about the hundred here it's like this is what would happen if australia India in England suddenly said sorry ICC we're not happy with what's happening here we're just going to play our own our own league now when this bears help me out here when this started when it was first launched they wanted to stay in all their leagues and play this midweek was that right I'm
0: not 100% sure the only thing that I would add is that it's been on the table for a long time it's been talked about by a number of clubs over well decades now yeah, my impression was that at first they they didn't want to break away from their league system, but I think the issue was that the matches were not going to be recognised by FIFA or any other continental or, or national board, ergo they would essentially be glorified friendlies and they'd have no context or meaning to them and as a result they kind of turned away and said well you know at the benefit of ourselves and ourselves only we're just going to break away because i think a number of the clubs are owned by american owners who have money involved in american sports and the franchise models that work there and they get a very safe and cushy sum of money every year just to stay where they are where they are, because there is no hierarchy and there is no promotion relegation. And the idea of breaking away from that was to ensure that they wouldn't have to experience the troubles of potentially being relegated, hence breaking away from from that league system. So look, yeah, I mean, it was interesting watching football go absolutely bananas for about three days there. And the people who went crazy about it or craziest about it were the were the very fans of the clubs that intended to break away. So I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know about how out of touch a lot of those owners were. And yeah, the owners had absolutely no regard for anyone else, even probably involved in their own clubs, about you know where that money was coming in, because I think they were just basically thinking about their, their trips and their holidays to the Cayman Islands and their tax havens that they didn't have to worry about uh, in the future. So, yeah, I think it's a watershed moment for the game. And also, sport in general, I think we will take a lot of... A lot of knowledge and a lot of perspective on, on all of that when they when they do try and do something like that in the, in the in the near future.
2: Well, and just one sort of final point that I think has a lot of parallels in cricket is, is Russell Degnan, who is often quite perceptive about these sorts of things. He, he made the point that you look at how we got into this situation, you know, for example, La Liga in Spain, where Barcelona and Real Madrid have been calling the shots for years and taking a disproportionate amount of the revenue and, you know, basically funneling all the resources upwards to themselves. And then, then they get to a situation where they, they, they turn around and say to the league, well, it's not competitive and the matches are boring because it's too dominant and and well, why is that? Because they've been sabotaging the league by taking all the money and you can make a lot of comparisons to international cricket in terms of, you know, Rich Board's uh, re- redirecting uh, development budgets into their own coffers and and that sort of thing you know then then we have people saying, "Oh well, we need to have less teams in the World Cup because it's you know, the mismatches and it's boring. Well, why are they mismatches because you you're not funding the development of the teams to get better. So yeah I, I think as well as the the super league itself, there are some some lessons to be learnt about the sort of the run up to how we got into the situation of the super league. I'm Claire Polisak and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast.
0: Uh, moving to Thailand, gentlemen, and we saw a change at the helm in the captaincy of the women's national team. Naramul Chaiwai taking over and replacing Sonoran Tipok. Uh Tipok, who'd been such a colossal figure in the growth of the of the game there in Thailand over the last twelve to fifteen years, was very much the, the inspiration and, and almost the face of Thailand's World Cup campaign uh last year as well. A change at the helm, Tipok's still going to be a part of the national team, but yeah, a changing of the guard, Nick, rewarding Wife for, for not only her hard work on the field, but I'm sure they see something in her in, in terms of the, the leadership as well. Very interesting to see where they go from here. We we know that they've made such great strides over the last decade or so, as mentioned, but yeah, a new era of, of Thai cricket and, and she's been entrusted with that role to, to take the game even further in Thailand.
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting decision because... Obviously, Sonoran's been captain for, I think, 14 years now, which is one problem. I think, is that the the longest uh, reign as a a captain of any sort of current generation players? I I Uh. can't...
0: It, it would have to be very
2: close. I can't think of anyone who's been captain for longer in, in recent times at least. But yeah, I, I think the fact that she's staying on as a player is, is good and, and she'll be able to provide that senior leadership. I, d- I don't quite know what the logic is behind it. Maybe she's um, sort of retirement might be on the horizon somewhere and, and so they're, they're putting in place a transition. But that's just pure speculation on my part. I think, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how Chai Wai sort of puts her personality on it. Um, So, uh, Yeah.
1: Do you know, Sonarin is the has the highest. Well, she's number one, I should say, for economy rate in T Twenty internationals for women. And there, there are four Thai bowlers all under four as the top four, and at three point seven one, Tipok is is the best. So uh,
2: you know, if, oh, this is a great stat. I oh, know.
1: Oh, yeah, well, I can only echo what 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 you both have said that you know Thai cricket wouldn't be where it is without her, and it's similar to perhaps a Porterfield situation where when they step aside, hopefully they, they still get that time within the team to still impart their knowledge, uh, leadership qualities, et cetera, onto, onto the next generation and then she'll be able to play as as long as she is up to that standard which also means in a good situation that you not you don't have a captain there holding on to a place only because they're captain that Sonoran will still be selected um, when she's in the best 11 but uh, yeah this the, you know we talk about the the men's teams having a lot of cricket but Thailand's got you know two sets of qualifiers for the T20 World Cup and also the 50 over edition and you know luckily being part of that that region they've got the Asian Games in Hangzhou coming up in 2022 which as far as we're aware still going ahead and is having a cricket facility constructed or at least modified one of their their current facilities so you know there's there's a lot coming up and and I think there's also good news potentially in the wings of of, of better support for the the Thai cricketers leading up to the Asian Games as well that we're that we've been sort of waiting with bated breath but like a lot of those Asian nations with with funding linked to Olympic Games and of which you know the Asian Games is an Asian Olympics basically and a lot of the time comes out of the same funding pot so overall so I think it's just a, a positive move that this didn't happen you know after a poor showing or just before an, an event that'll give Niramol more time to to get used to catching you know she's been in the, in the same team as Sanaren for you know since Day Dot both debuting at the same time in terms of T20 Nationals back in 2018 for Thailand and you know we all know that they played a long time together before that as well before the, the game's got status, but hopefully this will be a, an easy handover, but it will be interesting in saying that, you know, what spin or angle that, that a new captain brings, because, you know, this, this country's been captain its entire time in women's cricket by the one player up up until now.
0: Thailand, unfortunately, won't be a part of the Women's Commonwealth Games next year, not part of the Commonwealth. We have had some official Qualifiers, and we'll use uh, inverted commas there because they have been based on the rankings. Of course, England will qualify as host nation. Australia, India, New Zealand, South Africa, and Pakistan. Uh, all through as per women's T20I rankings. Now, there are two spots left up for grabs. One of them will be through a West Indies regional qualifier, of course, with the West Indies comprised of a number of different sovereign nations. They'll have to work out between themselves how a champion will be decided there. And we will see one more qualifier come through. Now, that qualifier needs to be decided by January 2022. A competition for all of that is to be announced There isn't really a whole lot of news here, but looking at the potential qualifiers that come through here Bangladesh certainly a good shout as well as Sri Lanka but Scotland you would think would have more than a good chance of, of finding that top spot will be interesting to see how Northern Ireland go about things if they were to put in a team and the same with Wales you know a lot of people on, on Twitter talk about the idea of the Welsh having a breakaway international team and international membership so it might be a good chance for, for them to see what it would be like in a in, almost in a parallel universe but it's going to be very interesting to see once they do have that tournament put together nick as well as the the west indies regional qualifier just who comes through there to 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 take up those last two spots
2: yeah, I mean, I think the interesting news here is that they're actually planning to have a Caribbean tournament because there was a bit of chat about how well they might just use the previous winner from the, the domestic West Indies tournament uh, rather than having an actual tournament. But no, the plan is still to have an actual qualifier, which is really good news because, you know, the last, <laughs> the last time they actually had one of those T20 competitions for women was over two years ago, I think. So I think this is an interesting example of having a multi-sport games and had that multi-sport games qualification process is then forcing the individual nations to get their act together and actually, you know, put some more cricket on the field. And, you know, if cricket does eventually wind its way into the Olympics... Uh, we'll see that in a much larger scale with global qualifiers for from a lot of teams. As you know, as we've seen, for example, with the rugby sevens, we, with you know a number of events around the world. So, being in the Commonwealth Games has now prompted Cricket West Indies to, and you know, I'm not saying that they weren't planning to have a tournament anyway, but you know, having the Commonwealth Games has added just an extra incentive for them to, to get it done. So, I think this is a good example of the the benefits of multi sport games.
1: We can't forget Papua New Guinea either. Mm, yeah, you know, they they did make it to the the semi finals of the the T20 World Cup qualifier you know we talk about Scotland you know PNG went further the, than, than Scotland and, and only you know it was just that were they placed in the end you know it was only that Thailand was able to finish the top of their group after that amazing win against Ireland and, and come up against PNG in the semis so look I'd, I'd put them them right at the top there I don't think they've, they've talked about where this qualifier will be played will they? But if it's somewhere that... Well, actually, it doesn't matter where it's played because I think, you know, PNG with Konyo Oala up at the top of the order, you know, there's a, an opening bat that can take any attack apart in the world. And just thinking of that, it wouldn't be great to see her playing in the, the WBBL. Mm. But anyway, that's an, another conversation for another day. But with someone like that at the top of the order that can just take the game away from someone, that'd be exciting to, to see PNG in action.
0: Yeah, it would be... I suppose, remiss for us not to mention a few of the other Commonwealth nations that we do see featuring women's international cricket quite a bit. Uh, Namibia, Rwanda, Nigeria. Uh, You're Vanuatu now, Tim, of course. Samoa, Fiji, Canada. Just trying to make sure I don't forget any others. Kenya as well. So it will be interesting to see who actually takes up a spot in the qualifier to intend on qualifying in in Birmingham and and how all of that is organized because just like what we're seeing now in in international cricket for for global events, we are running out of road to ensure that a lot of international fixtures do actually get played. So we'll keep our our ears to the floor in in terms of how all of that will be sorted out. Jersey as well uh, and the Channel Islands will all compete under their own flag at, at the Commonwealth Games. So there are plenty of teams out there who will you would think, have a shot at at qualification for this tournament. But yeah, again, getting them all into one spot in terms of qualifying or maybe even doing regional qualifiers, we've heard nothing from the Commonwealth Games or from international cricket in in regards to all of that. So once we do... Get that news, we'll we'll pass it along not only through the pod but on the Emerging Cricket website. Some more news to finish up this week's show first. Ireland Wolves are set to host a Dutch A team from the tenth of May for three one day matches in Dublin, with Sport Island confirming that the visiting Dutch side would be exempt from mandatory quarantine. The matches will be live streamed and live scored via the Cricket Island match centre, with no spectators permitted at games. Staying in Ireland and the Irish domestic interpro season begins this weekend. The fifty over tournament will be held in its entirety early in the summer ahead of important ODI Super League series against the Netherlands, South Africa and Zimbabwe, with a T20 tournament picking up later in the year as Ireland begin their World Cup preparations. And finally, the Czech Republic has announced a four-team Central European Cup with 12 T20 internationals to take place from the 21st to the 23rd of May. Both the Banksfield and the Scott Page field in Prague have been upgraded to meet T20 international standards with Austria, Luxembourg and Malta traveling for the competition. That's everything in the Emerging Game this week. For more on the news around the world, log on to EmergingCricket.com. On behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.